0: And invite you to open your Bibles. We are in Hebrews chapter 11 tonight. It's Hebrews 11. Let me pray as we come to God in His Word. Father in heaven, we pray for spiritual sight tonight. We thank you that you have spoken to us by your Word. And we ask now that you would give us eyes to see and that you would give us hearts to embrace your truth. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. We've been working through Hebrews 11 here on our evening series this fall, and so tonight we are coming to our text, Hebrews 11, verses 13 through 16. Uh, And Just before we read this, I want to direct us back to the the context for what we will be seeing tonight. Uh, If you remember uh, Pastor Kevin... Uh, started our, our series by looking at the end of chapter 10, Hebrews 10. Uh, so I just want to return there for a moment because it really does set the stage. It sets the context for what we will see tonight from Hebrews 11. So Hebrews 10, uh, verse 36, here's what we see. The author there says, For you have need of endurance. A need of endurance. This is the, the big thing that the author wants to focus in on in Hebrews 11. Is faith that will endure. So he says here, you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And he quotes here from the Old Testament, for yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we, we are not of those who shrink back. And we are not destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So, this is the, the context for what we're seeing in Hebrews 11, this, this chapter of faith. What does faith look like? And more specifically, what does it look like to have a faith that would preserve our souls? What does it look like to have a faith that would preserve our souls? So we come now to Hebrews 11 and follow along with me as we look more closely at verses 13 through 16. Hebrews 11, 13 through 16. The author says there, "'These all died in faith, "'not having received the things promised, "'but having seen them and greeted them from afar, "'and having acknowledged that they were strangers "'and exiles on the earth.'" main question behind this text as we come to Hebrews 11, as we just saw, is this. What does it look like to preserve our souls? And, and more specifically, how do we get to the place that we started in verse, six, or verse 13, where it says, these all died in faith? How is it that we get to death with a faith still intact, a faith that perseveres? See, we need more than just a general faith. We need more than some kind of a cheery optimism. What we need is a faith that will persevere to the end. And so that's the the thesis that I see from these verses, that a true faith is a persevering faith. A true faith is a persevering faith. It brings us through all the trials of life. It brings us to the point of death and then it ushers us into the eternal city of God. So that's what I wanna think about together tonight from this text is a persevering faith and specifically I wanna look at four features of a persevering faith, four features. And as we go through this, you can think of these in, in really two ways. One is sort of a diagnostic. In other words, do I have this kind of a faith? Is this the kind of faith that I see in my own life? That's the, sort of the diagnostic question. The other question is a means question. Am I putting this into practice? Am I growing in the faith that I have? So a diagnostic and a means. And these are the four features that we see from this text. Seeing, speaking, thinking, and desiring. So a persevering faith will see, it will speak, it will think, and it will desire all in faith. That's what we want to look at tonight. So first of all, to start off, a persevering faith. A persevering faith gives us spiritual eyes. So here's the question. What do you see when you look at your life? What do you see when you look at this world? As I said, we saw here in verse 13, it starts out by saying, these all died in faith. The author is referencing back to the the list of names we've already seen and looked at. See, Abel in verse 4, Enoch in verse 5, Noah in verse 7, Abraham in verse 8, Sarah in verse 11. The author says, these all died in faith. Of course, you can put the little caveat there. Enoch didn't technically die. He was ushered up into heaven without seeing a physical death. But in general, these figures, they all died in faith. They made it to the end. They did not waver in their unbelief. They were pilgrims. They knew that there was more to life than the things around them. And as one author says, they knew that there were better things ahead because in one way or another, God had told them so, and they preferred to believe his word rather than the flimsy promises and the facile assurances of the world around them. All these figures, they died in faith because they saw the promises of God, not with a physical sight. That's what it says in verse 13. They did not receive the things that were promised. They did not get them physically, but they saw them with eyes of faith. They saw the promises of God with eyes of faith. So think of some of the promises that these early figures would have known Think of Genesis 3.15, God's promise to defeat Satan, the dragon, and that one born from a descendant of Eve would kill this serpent. Or just a little bit later in Genesis 3 when God clothes Adam and Eve, you see there the promise that God would provide a covering, an atonement for sin through the death of another. You think of Abel in his life, God's promise to accept offerings made to him in faith. And even in his death, we see that there's this promise of a sacrifice that would come that would speak a better word than his death. You see, in the life of Enoch, God's promise that those who walk with God will be with him bodily, physically, in eternity forever You think of Noah, God's promise to never to destroy the world again by a flood. And that God's promise, his covenant would come to Noah and through his family, through his descendants. And then, of course, you get to Abraham and all of these promises of God, they're starting to culminate in this promise for a land that God would bless Abraham and he would give him a land to enjoy this blessing. And this blessing then from Abraham would spread to all the nations. One, one author says this about this promise of land, and I think it helps us to see what's going on with, with these patriarchs. The author says this, The patriarchs were looking forward not so much to the day when their descendants would inherit the physical land as to the day when they themselves would inherit the the heavenly country, which the physical land signified. They saw through the promises of the land, looking beyond it to a deeper spiritual reality. The promise concerning the land, while real and valid in its own terms, pointed them typologically to something greater. This is what it means to see the promises of God. It means to see through the physical realities, the the physical circumstances of life, to see through those things, to see the deeper spiritual realities and promises which lay behind them. So they saw the promises of God. But notice it's not just that they saw them with sight Verse 13 tells us, they also greeted them from afar. They greeted these promises from afar. The, the word that's used here to greet something means to welcome it or to embrace it. Or as one author says, it means to hail it with delight. That's what it means to embrace these promises. So think of Moses as he is nearing the end of his life and he's gone through the wilderness wanderings and he climbs up the mountain at the very end of his life and he looks out, he sees the promised land, but he knows he can't enter it physically. God had told him that as a judgment for his sin earlier. But he sees the land and Moses was able in faith to welcome it. He knew that God was being faithful to his promise, even though he was not going to experience it physically. As we've already seen here from, uh, from Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1, we, we, we read there that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Conviction of things not seen. This is what it means to embrace, to welcome the promises of God. It means that we greet them. We have a deep-rooted confidence that whatever God tells us in his word is true. So we see them and we embrace them. We welcome them. This kind of a faith, this knowledge with a conviction... This is what allows us to evaluate the present circumstances of our life. With spiritual sight, we can see that the invisible God is with us in all that we do, in all that we experience. And with faith, we are able to greet and welcome God's promises to be more important than whatever physical conditions we are experiencing. This is what we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 where Paul writes there. He's reflecting on all the hardships of life, all the trials, all the sufferings, all the afflictions. And he says this, for this light momentary affliction, all all the hardships in life, it's light, it's momentary. But he says that this is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison and then he says, as we look, as we see, as we look to the things that are, as we, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So as you look at your own life, as you consider whatever it might be, your work situation, your family, your kids, your physical health, Whatever it might be, ask yourself this question, what do you see? What do you see? Do you see chaos? Do you see confusion? Do you see sadness? Do you see suffering? Or do you see through those things to the promises of God? And and not just see through them intellectually, but do you embrace them? Do you welcome them? Do you hail them with delight? So just think of some of these promises of God, that God is for us, that he is working all things for our good and is graciously giving us all things in Christ. The the promise of our full adoption that is one day coming and the redemption of our bodies. The, The promise that all evil and injustice will one day be made right. Or the promise that all the sadness of this world is one day going to come untrue. Faith sees the promises of God and embraces them. It gives us spiritual eyes to see through whatever present circumstances we might be in to see the glory that is coming. So the question is, do you see it? Do I see it? Here's a second feature of a persevering faith. A persevering faith gives us confessional mouths. A persevering faith gives us confessional mouths. Here's the question. What do you say? So what do you see? And now what do you say? Faith not only gives us eyes to see things, it also informs our mouths what we speak. So look again at verse 13. We've just looked at this faith that sees and greets the promises of God. And then it goes on to say, and having acknowledged, having acknowledged. This word is the Greek word that basically means to say the same thing, homo legato. to say the same thing. It's the word that we get, our word confession. To confess something means in its simplest form is to say the same thing over and over and over again. So to be confessional, you might say, is to repeat the same doctrines, the same truths, to remind yourself what is true over and over again. This is what this word is getting at, having acknowledged. And what is their confession? What's this confession being made here in verse 13? Well, it tells us, here's their confession, that they were strangers and exiles On the earth. This is their confession. They're strangers and they're exiles on this earth. Of course, it's easy to see the patriarchs. They knew this in a very tangible way, right? God had called Abram to leave his country. He went, he didn't know where he was going. That's what we saw last week, verse 9. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob. Right, So Abraham leaves the comforts of whatever sort of civilized life he knew at the time. He leaves all that behind and now he's living in tents in the desert, surrounded by these foreign nations. Abraham knew himself to be in exile, to be a stranger. This, this wasn't, he wasn't surrounded by the people that he knew in, in a culture he loved. So it's easy to see it in the life of Abraham. But even think of David. So David, when David comes on the scene, David is a king, he has a land, he has control, he has power. But even David knew himself to be this sort of stranger in exile. Here's what he says in Psalm 39, verse 12. David says, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears. And he says, For I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers, like all my fathers. David himself knew him, himself to be a sojourner, to be a guest just like the fathers who had come before him. They knew themselves to be strangers. They knew themselves to be exiles. And this, the prepositional phrase that's, that's right after that is, is the key. And this is so important. Because it says they're strangers and exiles on the earth, on the earth. Now, if you really drill in and think about this whole phrase and how it functions, this is a gospel phrase. This is a gospel confession, because it gets at the question of allegiance and friendship. Right? Where is your ultimate allegiance? Where is your ultimate friendship? And friends, we know, as the Bible tells us, that we are born as creatures bound within this physical world, that we spiritually are born slaves to the passions and desires of our flesh, that we are friends, we are allied with this world, with this fallen world. And so Paul will tell us in Ephesians 2 There he says this, remember that you, at one time, that you were separated from Christ, that you were an alien from the national blessings of Israel, that you were strangers to the covenants of promise and you had no hope and you were without God in the world. Paul's reminding us that we're all strangers by birth, but we're strangers not to this world, we're actually strangers to God. To be a friend of the world is to be an enemy of God, James 4 tells us. But the gospel changes our ultimate allegiances. The gospel changes our ultimate allegiances. We are now, because of Christ, that we who were once far off, Paul reminds us there in Ephesians 2, that we have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And that through Christ, we are now reconciled to God so that we are no longer strangers and aliens to God, but now we are a fellow citizen and members of God's house. So other places in the New Testament, Philippians 3 verse 20, Paul says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we are awaiting a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. See, our heavenly citizenship now makes us an exile on this earth. Peter reminds us of this, where he says that, look, you're calling on God, God who judges impartially, and because you're calling on God as your father, this is how you should live on earth. He says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. This life that we have on this earth, this is a time of exile for us. And Peter reminds us, because you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. And later on in 1 Peter 2, he reminds us, he says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, and he says, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which are waging war against your soul." To say this phrase, that I am a stranger and an exile on the earth, this is a gospel confession. And notice what our author here in Hebrews 11 tells us about this. Verse 14. He says, For people who speak thus, people who speak thus, in other words, people who make this their confession, people who talk like this, people who say this over and over, people who make this their central identity. He says, they make it clear. The word here in the Greek means to reveal like a bright sunny day as it shines forth and everything is clearly seen. And what are they making clear? And he says, to finish out this sentence, that they are seeking a homeland. So if you speak this way, if you, if you make this your gospel confession, you're making it clear to those around you that you are indeed seeking a homeland. The, the word there in the Greek really means a fatherland. It's, it, it's derived from the word father. It's this idea of our ultimate patriotism. And notice the inference is that this homeland will not be found on this earth, but that we are seeking it from another source. Now, think about the, the way that this language is, is being used here. Notice the author's not telling us to withdraw. He's not telling us to isolate ourselves. In other words, if you withdraw from society, you're, you're going to make it clear that you're seeking a homeland. Now, he didn't say that. He, he didn't say to isolate yourself, to keep yourself away from the things of this earth. But he uses the word to speak, to speak. We make it clear that we are indeed seeking a heavenly kingdom by speaking the truth of our kingdom identity. We make this our confession. So here's a question for us to consider. What is your loudest confession? What is your loudest confession? I think we make our confessions public today in lots of ways, but probably the the place we see it most is whatever sort of social media you might use. All right? So social media today is really the place we make our loudest confessions. What is your loudest confession on your social media? Do you make more, do you speak more of your earthly patriotism, whatever that might be? Do you speak more of your earthly identity, whatever you want to, to label that as? Or are you making it clear that your status is one of a sojourner, an exile, an alien here on this earth. So our first point, we see the promises of God. We welcome those promises by faith. And here we see that we preserve our souls by making our gospel identity, that we're strangers and we're aliens to this earth, by making that identity our loudest public confession. Here's a, a third feature of a persevering faith. Persevering faith gives us forward-thinking minds. Gives us forward-thinking minds. So here's the question, what do you think about? So what do you think about? You see this in verse 14. There we read, If if they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. Again, think back to to the life of Abram, right? He leaves the land of Ur. He's got all the comfort, all the food, all the wealth and power he could possibly have. Now he's living in tents. How often do you think he thought about returning back to the life he once had? Or even think of the, the life of Israel. How long did it take for them after they flee the oppression and slavery in Egypt? Now they're in the desert, they're wandering how long did it take them to start asking the question? Do you, do you remember the food we had back in Egypt? Let's, let's go back there. That Life was better back there. Right, notice the power of the mind in all of this. If you think about your former citizenship, if your mind is consumed with the patterns of sin that you've been rescued from, then you will have opportunity to return. That's what this text is telling us. That there will be an opportunity to return. The the Greek word for this is the word kairos. It's a word you probably heard before. It means a a season, a, a special appointed time or a season. That there will be a season in our life where God in his discipline perhaps, in his judgment, that he, he gives us over to the things we think about, to the things that we desire. This is exactly what we see in Romans 1, where God gives people up to a debased mind. Right, The life of the mind is so critical for the Christian. What we think about makes all the difference. Of course, we can err in, in several ways. We could err by not thinking, right, sort of a gullibleness where we're just kind of tossed back and forth by the newest ideas and the newest fads. We could err by overthinking, sort of an intellectualism, uh, an idolatry of rationality. But here what we see in this text is that we are called to be heavenly thinkers heavenly thinkers. Faith gives us forward-thinking minds. It gives us discernment about the things of this world because it allows us to view them through the lens of eternity. As we think about our lives and as we think about whatever interactions we may have in this world, faith is what allows us to identify what is true what is honorable, what is just, what is pure, what is lovely, what is commendable, what is excellent. All right, Philippians 4. These are the things that are worth thinking about. See, faith doesn't destroy our thinking. It actually elevates our thinking. It gives us discernment and it raises the bar for what should be filling our minds. So the question, what do you think about most? What do you think about most? Is it a new car, a better house, a better job, a better spouse, uh, a, a greater country? All right, what is it that fills your mind the most? That's a question that the, I think the author would ask us. We don't preserve our souls by backward thinking, by dwelling upon the sin and the misery of this world. Rather, we preserve our souls with forward thinking, dwelling upon the beauties and the glories of heaven. So we have minds that think of heaven. Here's a a fourth element, a fourth feature of a persevering faith. A persevering faith gives us bigger hearts. A persevering faith gives us bigger hearts. So here's the question, what do you desire What do you desire? We see that in verse 16. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. See, faith gives us the knowledge that there is a better country waiting for us. That's what we saw last week when Pat preached and and opened up for us Revelation 21, this country that is waiting for us and that we are bound to receive. Notice here, though, the covenantal promise that is being fulfilled in this text. So all through the Old Testament, God's promise was that he would be a God to his people and that we would be his children, his people. And so now look again at verse 16. What do we see there? There we read that God is not ashamed to be called their God. God is not ashamed to be called our God. How do we know that's true? What's the proof of that? Well, here's the answer. Because God has prepared for them, for us, a city. And God does not build cities for his enemies. He builds it for his people. This is such a a simple sentence, but the grammar makes all the difference. See, God is the one who has prepared it. He's the one doing it. This is not something that we do ourselves. But he does it for them. He does it for us. God's activity is for the benefit of his people. In other words, it's for us to enjoy. And what does he prepare for us to enjoy? He prepares for us a city. This word in the Greek is the word polis. It's the word that we get our word, politics, right? God's politics. It's just, there's, there's lots of things that you could go into on here, but just think of this. Whenever you feel your heart being pulled into the politics, the, the polis of this world, remember that there is a better city for you to desire. There's a better city for us to desire. The more we become dissatisfied with our earthly countries, and and we should, right? The longer we live by faith, we should grow more and more dissatisfied. The more that happens, the more we should desire the heavenly one. Faith not only gives us the knowledge of this greater city, it also gives us the desire for it. And this is one of the means that we are given to preserve our souls, that we would desire a better country, a heavenly one, whose architect and builder is God himself. So, lots of questions for application here, but just one, especially for us in this time, in this season of our political cycle. Which city and whose politics captures your greatest desires? Is it the cities of men or is it the city of God? See, God has prepared for us, uniquely for us as his people, a city. And it's better than anything else we could find in this world. As we close, I just want to return our attention back to verse 13. Because in verse 13, we started with death. But notice we end in verse 16 with life. We end with life in a city. And this life in a city is for God's people. It's for those who have a faith that perseveres because we know that death is not the end. It it marks the beginning for us of adventure and joy and life forever with God in this glorious city that he himself has prepared for us. So the question, how do we get there? How do we get to this city? Well, ask yourself the question, do I have this kind of a faith? Do I have a persevering faith? And if I do, is my faith growing? Is it increasing? We see the promises of God in his word. Do you see God's promises as you look at at his word? We confess the truth of our gospel identity. Is this your loudest confession? We think about, we meditate upon the politics of heaven is that your meditation and we desire a place of infinite infinite beauty that is better than anything this world can offer this is a persevering faith and friends i hope that this faith marks your life as well as mine let's pray and ask god to to bless his word lord we thank you that you indeed have given us a city You've given us a better country that we can desire and look forward to. And I pray for each one of us in this room tonight that our lives would be marked by this persevering faith, that we would see your promises, that we would embrace them, that we would make our gospel identity our loudest confession, that we would meditate upon your kingdom and your city, and that our desire for it would grow day by day. And we would ask all of this in Jesus' name, amen.